From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, schools are in focus today as the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, has been laying out his plans for getting kids back into the classroom. Now, earlier in the week, of course, Boris Johnson announced all children will be able to return in September at the latest. But a big factor is the risk of a surge in new infections, of course, which puts the focus on high-quality online learning should local lockdowns come back into force. Yeah, there's so much to take into account here, isn't there? Where you are in the country, your sort of economic background as well, the kids who haven't had quite as much attention, all of this needs to be evened out by the government. So it's a really tricky one for them to deal with. And meanwhile, most papers, the British government promising almost 3 million people there, new visas, a path to UK citizenship. Uh, that's after China enforced, of course, these sweeping security laws on the former colony. We heard from the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab. He called the new law a flagrant assault on people's rights. The enactment of this legislation imposed by the authorities in Beijing on the people of Hong Kong constitutes a clear and serious breach of the joint declaration. Well, Dominic Raab making a case for a way in which, it has to be said, this Conservative government still doesn't really seem like a Conservative government. We have a government that's spending huge amounts of public money uh, on lots of projects in a way that perhaps even Jeremy Corbyn might blush at, and now seeming to invite perhaps three million people to uh, immigrate into the country. Well, joining us now is Harriet Baldwin, Conservative MP for West Worcestershire. Harriet, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Um, Actually, let's tackle that problem first. I mean, is this something that you would welcome, the arrival of perhaps three million people from Hong Kong? Well, I think that no one expects everyone to take the British government up on this offer, but we believe it's very important to honour our commitments. And honour our commitments uh, means that for those holding uh, British national overseas status, uh, that we've created a new route for them to come to the UK. And uh, we are very concerned about the very significant violations that uh, China has uh, now uh, undertaken in terms of the joint declaration that we signed with China in 1984. Well, well, that's just the issue, isn't it? That China, as Dominic Raab said, can stop this. They can stop Hong Kong citizens from leaving. And that leaves Britain essentially powerless. What should Britain's next move be in the situation? 
Well, uh, we've made our views very clear. Um, we believe that uh, the steps that uh, China has taken uh, violate a range of uh, elements of the joint declaration, specifically paragraphs 3.3, paragraph 3.5, um, subparagraph 2 and 3 of paragraph 3. So um, these are real concerns that we have. And uh, we believe that as a country, uh, we respect our international agreements. We believe in the rules-based international order. And this is a treaty that we signed in good faith with uh, Hong Kong, a joint declaration we signed with Hong Kong, uh, with China, uh, about Hong Kong. And uh, it is crucial that we um, uh, uh, respect uh, the uh, the words that we, we, we put in good faith uh, into that declaration. But as a former uh, Foreign Office Minister yourself, Harriet, I mean, you know that this is part of a longer pattern of concern about China and its role in the world, the way in which it acts, perhaps. Uh, and Huawei is also part of that. Uh, do you think it's time to remove Huawei from our infrastructure uh, to, to, relate, to, to bring out those security concerns again? And, and also the fact that the United States is proving very hostile to that, and that could bring us problems if we don't. Well, I've been not only a former foreign office minister, but I was a former defence minister and, and treasury minister. So I can see these uh, problems from all angles. And I think that certainly from a defence point of view, uh, we have always ensured that our communications are completely sovereign and secure. So that um, is an important starting point. I think uh, there is a wider uh, question about uh, the range of different suppliers that are available, particularly for the 5G rollout. And I think we do think that it's strategically important for uh, us as a country to be able to make sure that we have a range of different suppliers that we can choose from and that we're not dependent on any one supplier for something that's so important to the economy of the 21st century. But more broadly, is is Britain too far in China's pocket? It was a big focus, wasn't it, under Cameron? We saw uh, him and many other cabinet ministers whining and dining with Chinese leaders over those years. You've got things like Hingley Point C, so nuclear power coming into this as well. And now we see just how much China can flex its muscle. Has it gone too far? Well, we think that as a country, we represent, you know, one of the most global and interlinked economies. That's always been uh, a great strength of, uh, of the United Kingdom. And it's very much a continued vision in terms of uh, the 21st century that we be, you know, the heart of uh, the global uh, trading networks, um, both physical and, of course, in services. And so that's very much our vision for the economy. And that will obviously mean that uh, with all economies, we want to have good, strong uh, trading relationships. We want to make sure that there is um, strong capitalist and also competitive markets that will benefit uh, consumers in this country and create jobs for them. We welcome that inward investment. And so that's the kind of basis on which um, we want to kind of organise our trading and economic relationships. And I think that obviously means that for the second largest economy in the world, we want to have uh, a good uh, trading relationship with them, uh, um, as indeed we do with, uh, with so many others. Harry, let's move on to the subject which I think is probably in the minds of a lot of uh, your constituents, probably what's going to happen on Saturday, the reopening of uh, pubs and restaurants uh, and some other things. And many people might be feeling, perhaps uh, as they sink their first pint, that um, this is all happening before the schools have gone back. Is this entirely the right order of priorities? What do you think? 
Well, I think the schools are incredibly important. And of course, they have been open throughout uh, not only uh, the summer term, but they've been open through uh, the Easter holidays as well. And I think our teachers have done a fantastic job um, in educating both physically the children of key workers on site, but also on a remote basis, they've been educating all their children. And uh, now the the, the shift is towards the physical return of children in September and the Secretary of State setting out a, a vision for that, um, which involves keeping year groups close together so that, um, you know, as and when, and I think we all recognise that we brought this virus under control in the United Kingdom. It's now at a very low level of circulation in the population. We've built the capacity in terms of testing that will be needed to deal with any outbreaks that might occur. And uh, it's really important for children um, who haven't been able to physically see their friends um, to be able to return to school and also the benefit from um, their excellent teachers. You say that we've got the virus under control, but we're seeing surges in places like Leicester and you've got people uh, warning around the country of these localised hotspots. Is that not a concern that this could get out of control again, especially given that the pubs and restaurants and everything else is open and that people are being encouraged by the Prime Minister to take advantage of that? Well, obviously, the key thing is to keep that reproduction rate of the virus under one. Uh, and to do that, uh, you need to make sure that you've got the data um, at postcode level, which now exists, to um, make sure that when there is an outbreak, that whoever is affected uh, self-isolates, all their contacts self-isolate, so that instead of having a complete lockdown, we have a lockdown of just the people affected. And the pubs and the restaurants and the hotels when they reopen they will look different to people they will have changed and adapted to make sure that they can serve their customers in a way that's much uh, safer and covid secure and it has been adapted to ensure social distancing so it won't mean all crowding around the bar placing your orders it will mean sitting distantly in your family bubble and pr- 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 placing your order with a with a sort of local app and things like that it will feel very different there'll be you know in rural areas much more use of, of gardens and outdoor spaces where of course the virus transmits um, 18 times uh, less easily so uh, you will see a different space Um, you will see in hotels obviously that they've uh, very much uh, disinfected uh, the way in which they work and of course the key thing will be to continue to make sure you keep track of everyone's contacts so that where there is an outbreak because these will happen that you're able to um, as the prime minister likes to say whack-a-mole yeah, but whacking a mole, Harry, it's good when you're dealing with people who essentially are cooperative. But the fact is, a lot of people, I think, will think that this marks the end of social distancing. And particularly, let's face it, people who may have had a drink or two might not be entirely uh, up for keeping that distance apart. When you bring in children who obviously don't appreciate the need for it. I mean, this this is full of holes, this, isn't it? You've got... Um a very uh, negative view of the, the of the of the general um, British public. I think obviously publicans are there um, to supervise the whole process, and they are licensed individuals, and they they appreciate what needs to be done to allow people to go back and enjoy their facilities in a in a way that uh, controls things in a in a hygienic way, and that will involve you know a lot more hand sanitizer than you're used to seeing in a pub, and um, obviously um, children having to learn as they have learned to wash their hands more frequently so it's it is a different world but i am very confident that with our um, publicans they have made some very good adaptations just as our shop owners have and our supermarket owners have um, to allow people to shop safely in that in those spaces 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk about the other stories making news in the world of politics. We start with former Transport Minister Theresa Villiers slamming the government's quarantine for new arrivals in the UK. She told the BBC it hasn't been worth it after details of how few fines had been issued came about. So far, no UK police force has confirmed issuing any fines for people breaking the rules. The border forces handed out just two penalties, but Villiers said the travel industry had been damaged without cutting the COVID risk. So the balance there not falling in our favour, according to Theresa Villiers. But it's a very difficult thing to enforce, of course. It is, it is. As indeed is trying to stop people gambling more than they should. And the government's facing pressure from Parliament to tighten online gambling rules. The House of Lords Gambling Industry Committee is calling for stake limits, a slowdown of online play, and a ban on gambling advertising around sport, including on football team shirts. Uh, but, but the Minister, but people in Parliament are concerned that people stuck at home during the coronavirus lockdown are going to run up huge losses without safeguards. And that all comes less than a week after the House of Commons Committee said the gambling commission which is charged with regulating the industry had quote failed to adequately protest protect consumers as the business moved online yeah and remember of course it's not long since they challenged fixed or betting terminals the physical things and now they're looking at the online equivalents in terms of regulation uh, and then we've got this one for you ed sheeran the rolling stones and sir paul mccartney they're among the 1500 artists who have signed a letter calling for support for the uk's live music scene which as you might expect, isn't doing a whole lot at the moment. Uh, it's signed to Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, and it warns of the impact of COVID-19 on venues and musicians. It says the industry faces mass insolvencies with gigs and festivals unlikely to return until 2021. It calls for a clear conditional timeline for reopening venues without social distancing, as well as financial support and VAT exemption on ticket sales. I can imagine a timeline might be a little bit difficult to come up with for now, but it is an industry that relies so much on being there in person with a huge mass of other people. I don't know about you, Roger, but my whole summer has been cancelled in terms of festivals and the like. Um, and of course, if this is something you're interested in, we're going to dig into it in more detail tomorrow. Indeed. Well, let's let's also talk about party news because uh, the Greens are having a leadership race. Uh, Sean Berry and Jonathan Bartley are facing competition this time from two other candidates to remain in their post. And this comes as the party prepares for its two yearly programme selecting its top officials. And across the water in Northern Ireland, we've got an interesting situation developing because the Sinn Féin leader, Michelle O'Neill, who is, of course, Stormont Deputy First Minister, went to a funeral for an IRA veteran and apparently, allegedly, uh, wasn't involved in social distancing. In fact, breached social distancing rules. And consequently, the DUP, their rival party, but also their partner in power, is now calling on her to stand down. Of course, if that happened, we might be back to square one in terms of uh, the administration there, which was, of course, in stasis for a long time over a dispute between those two parties before. We'll see how that all plays out. Yes, a forever delicate situation over in Northern Ireland. But we will bring all that to you if and when it happens. But anyway, let's look back. Let's look forward. Let's see what the public are saying about Boris Johnson's attempt to relaunch his agenda for the UK and looking ahead to Saturday when we 
are allowed to go to pubs and restaurants again. Joining us now to do all of this is Ben Page, the CEO of Ipsos Mori. Uh, so, Ben, let's let's start with the speech then. What did it do for Boris Johnson's ratings, which I gather have been suffering a little bit lately? It hasn't made much difference, to be honest. And, uh, you know, I think people like us spend much more time paying attention to these sorts of announcements uh, than everybody else. So, you know, the public, you know, they, they hear announcements all the time. They're waiting to, they will they will judge it ultimately by what happens in their neighbourhoods, in their high streets, etc. Uh, so Boris Johnson's ratings are still, of course, better than they were at the time of his election in December. But his rival, Keir Starmer, is now making waves. And for the first time in a long time, Britain has an effective opposition. So at the moment, if there are an election tomorrow, the classic question... Boris uh, and the Conservatives would likely still win? Yes, although it's, but not with the same, potentially with the same sort of majority that they had last time. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, again, it's a very, very hypothetical question because we're not going to be having an election for years, quite frankly. But yes, Labour have made up ground since their appalling performance in December. Um, the size of the shift that Labour would need to see in a single election, though, to win a majority is something of sort of 1997-type proportions. But nevertheless, they you know they need they need to make up ground. And the other thing to say, although Keir Starmer's had a reasonably good start and is rated with the public at least similar to, to a young Tony Blair in the mid 1990s, it's worth saying that of course Ed Miliband got 12 percentage points ahead of David Cameron in the 2010 to 2015 Parliament, and that didn't end when well for him. Labour is still behind in the polls, so. You know, we we need to not get too excited. But I, what we are seeing is this rally round the flag moment of early lockdown, when the Conservatives soared ahead, and uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, that's now we're now resuming normal political, more normal political activity. Okay, so looking ahead, then Saturday, it's when a lot of things change in terms of lifting the lockdown. How are people feeling about getting out there? Are they heeding the encouragement from Boris Johnson to to spend and to drink and to eat and all the rest of it? Um, not really. I mean, I think what's interesting is that although we've got fifty five percent who say they're comfortable going to supermarkets, um, we've got any. 44% who say they're comfortable taking holidays in the UK, 42% not. And as we go down the list, going to pubs and restaurants, as I'm planning to on Saturday, but overall, 60% of the British say they're uncomfortable doing that. Uh, and we aren't really seeing these numbers, um, you know, changing very much. So we've, we've you know, we've, we've been having this sort of, you know, tempting, tempting prospect of cold pints of beers in pubs and things like that before us now for a few weeks. And it's not, it's not really changing. Um, you know, only quarter saying they're happy going to a cinema, only 25% saying that the similar number saying they're happy using public transport, only 15% want to go to a, a, you know, a sport, a concert of any kind, and of course they can't at the moment, but it just shows the majority of people, so they're not comfortable going out and doing these things that they're in theory allowed to do on Saturday. Now, we may still see these things absolutely packed, because if if 30% of the public all decide to go to a pub or a restaurant on Saturday, then it, it will look pretty busy. But it's, it's, you know, it's noticeable that there is still this abundance of caution. And I think things like the lockdown in Leicester and potentially other cities now um, is just a reminder that to, you know, to the public as, you know, as, and as all that the virus is still there. So we're seeing an abundance of caution on the part of the British public. And it will be interesting to see how, that, you know, how and if and when that starts to change. Yeah, one number that really caught my eye on that poll, uh, Ben, was fascinating, was only half of workers 
uh, now say they'd actually be comfortable returning to their place of work. So, so it's clearly an issue there. But let's talk about the wider issues, because you've got a really interesting social attitudes survey out, uh, one of the suggestions as to where the British public are in terms of being to the conservative end or to the liberal end, broadly put, and how that changes, uh, particularly in issues like race or LGBT rights. Well, what have you found? Well, we found that Britain has become culturally, uh, you know, more more liberal on things like race. I mean, only three percent of people in Britain believe that uh, you have to be white to be British now, and um, we also acknowledge that black and Asian people tend to get a raw deal from public services. Uh, so there's been a, there has been a marked shift in Britain on on things like race, on on LGBT rights, and in fact on on LGBT uh, issues. Britain and the Netherlands are probably the, are the two countries in the world out of 33 country, major countries that we studied that were most likely just to say gay men and lesbians should be free to live their lives as they wish. So Britain has become a lot more socially liberal. If I think back to the votes on um, whether gay people should be allowed to, be, to, to get married under Cameron, there were some MPs who said that they were voting uh, because their constituents said this was their point of view, and others that were saying, oh, it's a sign of the times, I've got to catch up. Wh- which way round is it generally? Is it the, the political class who lead the charge for this sort of thing, or does it come from the people? Um, well, it's a, mi- it's a mixture of both. And to be honest, if you look at the history of... Um uh, I don't know, liberal, liberalising, you know, homosexuality was illegal when I was born in 1965, and now we've got 66% who say it would be fine if Prince Harry had married a man rather than Meghan Markle. Um, so it's a, it, the way, the way I, I tend to see it, it's actually a mixture of push and pull. So you, you have people lobbying for change in society on decriminalisation of various things or, you know, pushing for allowing gay people to get married you then the law then catches up eventually so there's a sort of you know and then when when the government says something there's still interestingly in britain today about 29 percent of people who will who once the government tells you it's all right um you know so if, if marijuana was legalized it would be you know there would be a proportion of people say, all right now it's legal okay i'll go and smoke some um so it's a it's a mixture it's a, it's a dynamic process uh, where the government the government reflects public opinion, it, it, it generally moves late. It, it doesn't move. There is still opposition when it does things. So it hasn't. That it's not that everybody has swung round. But then when it does move, it, it that in itself further liberalises attitudes. If you see what I mean. And Ben, how does it reflect then in terms of attitudes to race? The the, the Black Lives Matter protest again. What's the kind of support level for things like that? Well, I mean, people support peaceful protests. And um, what, one of the things that's interesting is we've been, one of the studies we've been doing every month since 1974, it's just an open question to ask the British public, what are the biggest issues facing the country? And last month, at uh, the time of the Black Lives Matters protests, we had more people mentioning race relations than we've ever seen. It went from sort of 2 or 3% the month before to a quarter of us, and 4 out of 10 uh, black Asian minority ethnic Britons mentioning it, so it it really made you know really cut through, um, and I think overall the British don't like you know the British say you don't have to be uh, white to be British, um, you know we say that we think Britain is becoming more relaxed, um, we say we think Britain is becoming more tolerant. There are um, there's a sizable minority who say that's not you know who disagree with that and think things have gone far enough. But at the same time, we, we acknowledge that black and Asian people don't get a, you know, don't get the same treatment still today. So right. I, mean, I think it's a sign of progress, 
but there's yeah. still, you know, clearly we aren't we aren't there yet. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.